It's June, and that means that amidst everything else that is gripping our consciences and public squares across the United States of America, the U.S. Supreme Court is busy handing down decisions in a slate of critical cases. At Americans United for Life, we're waiting for SCOTUS's decision in June Medical Services versus Russo concerning a state's ability to regulate abortion businesses, just like any other medical facility, in order to encourage the health and safety of patients. At the same time that the coronavirus has been wreaking havoc across the globe as economic devastation and unemployment have hit Americans in every state, and as protests and riots have erupted as we confront issues of social and racial justice, a critical and heated debate has been taking place over the role and importance of originalism as a means of constitutional interpretation. We've spoken with David French and Josh Craddock about originalism and its cousin, textualism, And as the debate over the practical usefulness of originalism intensifies, we're joined today by Hadley Arcus, who joins Life, Liberty, and Law once again to contribute to this important conversation. Hadley Arcus is an author, professor, and political scientist, a professor emeritus at Amherst College, and Hadley also serves as founder and director of the James Wilson Institute on Natural Rights and the American Founding. I'm Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law, featuring conversations on the human right to life from Americans United for Life. Americans United for Life advances the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. And we're joined today by Hadley Arcus. Hadley, it's so good to be with you once again. How you doing? Oh, fine, sir. Thanks for having me on again. Good to see you and, and Noah. We've also got Noah Brandt coming to us again from Missouri. How you doing, Noah? Always happy to good. Great to see you, Hadley. You're, Hadley is, you know, we, we have so many great guests, but Hadley is one of my all-time favorites, and he's also my dad's all-time favorite. And when I mentioned that we're going to be talking to Hadley this afternoon, he was thrilled. Bring your father to D.C. We'll have lunch. Come on. Okay. <laughs> my father's too good for D.C., Hadley. I don't want to corrupt okay, him. Okay, let me, let me get I, – I want to – I should get back to Missouri. That's, 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 that's more – that's safer ground for me, I think. God's country. Absolutely, Hadley. <laughs> This debate over originalism, we got to take a step back for folks who aren't familiar with the concepts. Hadley, first, can you just explain to us originalism, textualism? What the heck is this? That's sort of what I could say. Beats the hell out of me. But I think, you know, this has been, I've been going through this for a long while. I was thinking, how did this begin? It began with, of course, some of us teach the American founding. And uh, they think that it, it would be to understand the American Constitution, it really would be good to go back to those people who will just give us the most luminous account of what they were doing. That makes sense. Okay. And I've talked to the American founding and uh, the writings of, of have Hamilton, Marshall, James Wilson. Sorry. But what we've seen is original, the originalism that's offered us now, the problem with it is that it's a truncated view of the American founding because it detaches the American founding from those anchoring moral truths and principles that the founders took, drew upon. They were there before the Constitution. They drew upon them in shaping the Constitution. And what was so remarkable about people like Hamilton, Marshall, and Wilson is that they found the need to keep drawing their judgments back to those anchoring grounds in explaining 
the judgments that they were were propounding now. But what the what we've seen as originalism is one that's insisted on staying at the text and not moving to those principles. Why is that? Because the first reaction came in the 80s to the um, um, extravagances of the liberal courts with Warren and then with uh, Berger, with especially with Roe versus Wade. And part of the, the argument was, you see, if a certain kind of conservative jurisprudence would say Roe versus Wade, and instead of seeing that remarkable brief that the lawyers for Texas presented, drawing about the most updated material in embryology, woven with principal reasoning, to explain why those laws in Texas protecting the unborn child were justified, because that child in the womb had never been anything less than human from any moment in its existence, and we all, it's, it has never been merely a part of the mother, and we all understand, don't we, that the laws of homicide are not proportioned to the height weight of the victim. The murder of an older, heavier man is not a, a worse murder than the murder of the child. Okay. Uh, it's okay. But instead, <laughs> instead, of, but instead of looking at that, the dissenters in Roe took the line that we've now come to see as conservative jurisprudence. They, instead of taking all that material, they said, ah, uh, it's all, it's all uh, illegitimate because abortion is nowhere mentioned in the Constitution. And therefore, they had no ground, the judges had no ground for declaring a constitutional right emanating from this Constitution. The members of the Supreme Court denied the human standing of the child, denied the claims of the child to the protections that would attach to any human being. Instead of doing that, they simply retreated to the mechanistic notion, it's not in the Constitution. So it became a kind of staple of conservative jurisprudence to say, we don't argue about the substance. We're leaving um, the political arena free to make those kinds of decisions. Uh, that that we have nothing to say about the moral substance of the matter. What it tells us is the doctrine of originalism has nothing to say about the gravest moral questions arising in our politics. And these people, some of these people, take that as a, as a great virtue. So what they're offering, you know, remember it was Justice Holmes gave the voice to the modern project of the law when he said the object here was to purge every word of moral significance from the law altogether to give us a pure science of law. This is a technocratic approach. Absolutely, yeah. And it was, so, and you say, well, uh, what is your pride? Ah, we are giving you principles of law that we could all agree on. And the great thing about those principles is that they have no moral relevance to anything that you would normally, you would care about. Right? You say, well, how can that be a commendation is it, of, of this project? And I think we are seeing now the, um, the reaction to the decision on the transgender is bringing this message now home to us, the implications home to us in a very forceful way. And I think we're seeing this in the context, too, of the debate over originalism as it's been unfolding for, you know, really a few years in a kind of a subterranean sense. But in particular, it seems to have really popped off publicly Say in the past six months or so, you know, Adrian Vermeule, of course, saw Rabbi Mari's yes. debate with David yes. French last I mean, we, year. We, yeah, we've been making uh, common, finding common ground, Adrian and I, on this stuff. 
Yeah, I think the Adrian in particular, so Adrian Vermeule is a professor of constitutional law at Harvard and a prolific writer. And he wrote, you know, we spoke with David French uh, a few weeks ago about Adrian's piece and David's perspective on originalism. Um, Adrian's piece is called Beyond Originalism. It appeared in The Atlantic. And it sounds like you two are pretty simpatico in the sense you're both making the same point. Adrian says that, you know, originalism served its purpose in the sense of kind of bringing uh, a more restrained or a more maybe process-oriented jurisprudence back to the law that tried to tether it a bit. But Adrian's point is, you know, that to whatever extent that was good, it served its purpose. It's time to move on, and it's time for uh, a jurisprudence that can have a more moral framework, that can kind of speak to, as you've said, Hadley, in the past, um, the the natural law, the meaning, the, the questions of justice that lie behind the text, right? It, 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 and it's supposed, it, it is it is the most natural sense in the way it's a way that ordinary people will talk about these issues. So you say, look, what, um, look, look, I'm just on the question of abortion. The question isn't the question. What is the nature of that being inside the womb? Why is that being anything less human than the, 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 uh, the humans who begot Right. It? What does justice look like? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, what is the ground on which you take, take remove a whole circle of class of human beings from the protections of the law simply by changing the labels? Not a, not a child. It's a fetus. Well, why can't a, an important, a, a, a substantial enterprise and vocation of law put those kinds of questions right at the at the fore, at the center of what we're talking about? My dear friend, Justice Scalia, is you know, associated with this scheme. And he would persistently go beyond the text for the sake of explaining what, what was so sensible about his own approach. You know, So he'd, he'd say something like, um, it's an axiom of the First Amendment that we should, not, we should not be making restrictions based on the content of the speech. Now, aside from the fact that I've been, spent 40 years resisting that, that claim, <laughs> that so-called axiom of his doesn't appear in my copy of the First Amendment. And you say, where did you come up with this? Well, he thought it was sensible, and uh, he probably so he'd have to reach out to some some understanding outside the text of the Constitution to explain what was sensible about it. There's just no way to do it. I think you know, Justice Frankfurter once raised the question: Tell me where the accent lies in this phrase. Um, see how it goes from the Fifth Amendment against people should not be compelled in any criminal case to give evidence against themselves. Well, so where's the accent? Is it um, against oneself? So if we gave you immunity, could we force you to uh, testify about your friends in the Communist Party? Is the <laughs> accent, or is the accent uncompelled? We can should be uh, uh, predicting people on the basis of, uh, of of testimony extracted from them under compulsion. Well, in order to answer the question, you have to move beyond that text. Go back to what do you think that the logic of this of this. Thing is the logic that makes sense of it morally. I think we're seeing with the Supreme Court uh, on a host of issues, we're seeing uh, the, that it's come to a point where Justice Roberts has sort of taken on the swing vote that was yeah. occupied by Justice Kennedy, right? And so if That's pro-lifers right. thought uh, with, say, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh that now we have a 5-4 block that's maybe more interested in substantive matters, that's maybe more interested in human rights issues on the pro-life issues, that's really now called into question as we await the June Medical Services oh, case. Serious question, serious question. Look, John Roberts swung himself over to be the sixth vote in the decision on the trans. Yet I was there at the during the oral argument, and the people are just drawing the inference that John 
moved over to that side for the sake of firming up the decision of the court. It's a controversial decision. It's, it's, it touches the gravest issues about how human beings are constituted. You know, it's not a matter of franchises in the television, things like that. Uh, and he knows that if it's a 5-4 decision hanging by a thread, people say, ah, this is up in the air. And there'll be more temptations to see if we can move in Congress and other, other channels to try to deal with it. And what he was doing was, I think, firming up the decision of the court, making it harder for to be harder to challenge the decision politically. Which is, but the, but what what he's given us is, you know, I said to somebody is that my my concern is that if John were on the court in the Dred Scott decision, he would have gone to the majority for the same reason to try to firm up the uh, legitimacy of the court and. Uh, against people who'd be mounting a, a national challenge to that decision. You're alluding to it now, and I think a lot of people, especially like me, who aren't nearly as involved or a historian of the court, it seems like John Roberts, that he views himself as the arbiter of the court's legitimacy or that his number one priority is to make sure that people respect the court, even even if he doesn't come to a the, the court doesn't come to a decision that he himself is that happy with. Is that a, a good role for Chief Justice, or am, am I misreading what he's trying to do? Uh, just realize the, 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 the enormity of what's taking place. I think you have it exactly right, though. You, you, you've written exactly right. But here's the import, the deeper import of it. He, he's, you could say he must have had real dubiety about this decision, about the, the content of it. But he's firming up the standing of the court. It's legitimate. It, it, he does not want its decisions challenged so readily in the political arena. But what which is says we have is this, and here's the enormity of it. He's willing to put to use his influence, throw his weight, for the sake of firming the legitimacy of the court in what it decides, quite apart from the moral substance of the jurisprudence. It is issue and teaching that i find to be the scary part of it it's treating our political institutions as political in sort of the thinnest most narrow sense as bodies that exercise power that have authority in the public square but that are untethered from ultimate questions questions of telos questions of order and when i, I look at the human right to life issues i think that causes us to be uh, pretty dubious about where the court's going to go, right? You know, Noah, I know we were talking recently about the possibility that the United States arrives at sort of, you know, the European consensus, right? In so many European countries, social issues, but abortion especially, is not really a part of the political arena, uh, especially in the way it is here, because there's been this sort of societal consensus that abortion is completely okay and cannot be challenged maybe up to 12 weeks first semester beginning of second trimester it's broadly acceptable it's broadly acceptable but then it's it's much more challenging than than here in america to get a late-term abortion so there's like it to simplify it there's no late-term abortion but unlimited and unchallengeable early abortion and i i think that if the united states came to that that would be a really a really negative place could you see anything like that happening here hadley Oh, absolutely. The reaction, I guess, no, it's lost. The issue is lost. People, you know, my Jerry Bradley says, oh, do you think that the issue has been really resolved? Do you think that question has been solved, has been, been answered in, in a defensible way? If it hasn't been answered in a defensible way, why should you consider it lost? 
Uh, but yet, uh, people just get fatigued and they give in. They say, look at the constellation. They don't, want, they don't want to look forward to beating their heads against the wall. And they also look at the remarkable hostility. As you see, even in the with, the, with these riots. I mean, if you want to say, well, black lives matter. Well, what about the black lives extinguished in abortion? With uh, the number of uh, abortions in New York for black people exceeding the live births. You can't mm. talk about that. And you and you, you can you consider the villain if you try to raise them. It's amazing how the wall has gone up. So you know, I think you're quite right, Noah. That um, look, this the, look look what's going to happen now. How many people with the Margie Denenfelser and the and our pro life group recruit to the polls in support of Don Trump because of the prospect of the courts and the, and the, and defending life in the court? And now what they see is you can vote for Trump. You thought you were getting a, uh, a pro-life uh, uh, conservative majority in the court. And guess what? You're not. And, he's, and, and he, uh, John Roberts will never move to overturn Roe versus Wade. And he may even start going the other way on the, his other cases. It, it gets, look, this could get demoralizing for people. And uh, soon they just fade away and give up. Now. So I'm not. I'm not diminishing the people. Think, well, okay, it was. Bad. It wasn't merely a bad day. This is a. This thing. This decision portends deep, deep threats and deep changes, uh, in the. In, it's deepening in the culture, and um, I think you'll be. You'd have to be, kind of obtuse, to to, to treat this kind of thing lightly. I, I don't. You know. You know. At the end again. You know. It's like Michael Novak's old line about. The Polish optimist, the pessimist, the pessimist says, oh, God, things can't get any worse. And the optimist says, oh, yes, they can. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. I'm thinking of the, the Wall Street Journal responding to the recent uh, decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court. And the point was made in, uh, in the journal. They said if Justice Gorsuch can use textualism to rewrite a statute uh, to comport with changing public mores, then it is meaningless, um, it being textualism. It says textualism becomes merely one more tool of those who believe in a living constitution that means whatever any justice wants to say it means. That's what the Wall Street Journal had to say about it. And I think, you know, when we look at that with the pro-life issues, it's hard not to think, I mean, we, we've had that sort of since Roe. We had Casey. Casey, I think, opened up, it seemed to open up a sort of a whole universe of opportunities for progress, uh, progress meaning a recovery of human rights. But I'm wondering, Hadley and, and Noah, what you guys think of, you know, is there a way to think of sort of everything uh, that's occurred since Casey? Is there is there a risk that Casey, that the opportunities it opened up may have become actually blind alleys in the sense that it's led to a sort of a de facto accommodationism in the, the pro-life movement to say, let's just sort of regulate different things, but let's no longer address sort of the substantive questions that you raised, Hadley, the sort of the justice questions. Well, of course, it was it was a it was bad in the sense that it, we were on the verge at that time of we thought that the court was going to overturn Roe versus Wade. This was uh, nineteen ninety two. In fact, I was marked the other day. It seems very similar. The moment seems very similar. When um, I remember, there was a pro life meeting in town. At least of this pro life leadership group meeting every quarter. And this the, the, the decision came out in Planned in Plan Parenthood versus Casey when we were out. And people were furious. And um, this was a time for recriminations. Yes, they called the White House, I think it was Leon Metzger, 
who, who came over from the Bush White House mm. and say, appear before the group, say, look, we've been, we've been, you know, looking over our notes, you know, where did this come from? How did this, you know, we have a defection from uh, three Republican appointees, uh, Kennedy, O'Connor, and Souter. Uh, we weren't expect we certainly weren't expecting this, and this was this was comparable to what happened now. Now some things were done in that case. I mean, there was uh, upholding the notion of uh, of a waiting period and uh, uh, an informed consent, and some interesting things. And Definite progress, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, they, you know they could do that. And uh, if we moved along those that path, that was a, that could have been productive. Um, we we this with this bill of ours to protect the child to born born alive. This could be very useful politically. But the curious thing is, it just has not been used. Even Trump doesn't understand the gift that was given to him. It's not being advanced meaningfully, right? No, it, it's it, it should be advanced politically, because the new networks, even Fox News, won't cover it. Why? Because abortions have just become an uncomfortable subject. There's another, another take on those for good those, reasons. Yeah, they. They they're uncomfortable talk. People don't want to hear about it, so they, they at the point the point you start covering it. Uh, C-SPAN used to it covered me in the hearings on the Born Alive Act back in uh, two thousand. They no longer cover hearings on abortion. They, they just they're, they're, it vexes their 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 uh, viewers and listeners. Um, we could have. We could have used we could use the, the thing politically to, to real effect if they had any sense of how to use it. You have the Democrats now voting almost univer- almost entirely with like five or six votes lacking, and and a couple of those votes won't be there anymore. The Democrats are voting in a body in the House and on the Senate against that bill, which means that the Democratic position is unite. We've all, we, the three of us talked about this earlier. The Democratic position now is that the right to abortion extends beyond the pregnancy and entails nothing less than the right to kill the child who survives. This is relating to that question of can you well, leave yeah. a child basically to exposure after birth? Oh, sure. Uh, which, which is part, one of the ways they do it. Uh, imagine if Donald Trump used that or, or the Democrats decided to crystallize that as one of the... Do you understand what... The, even you people who call themselves pro-choice are not that radical on this matter. They, but they don't use it. Why won't they use it? Because they're, they're timid about talking about it. Uh, lots of good things could be done. Uh, they could be done more readily in Missouri, which is always been pro <laughs> Kansas, great state, the, great political right, state. Texas, <laughs> they, these will be. They'll be bringing these things up. We have a good. But system. but but even even Hadley, you know, even in a place like Missouri. Uh, the, the Missouri Health Department attempted to shut down Missouri's last abortion clinic, which is Planned Parenthood St. Louis, uh, abortion factory that does thousands a week and has uh, licentious, horrible history of uh, violations of, of health that have hurt and killed women along with thousands yeah. of children that kill every day. And it was shut down for approximately three or four weeks from performing abortions. But guess what? A judge stepped in and said, sorry, state of Missouri Health Department, you can't shut these guys down. They pretty much said that you can that this abortion clinic can commit any atrocity that they could possibly think of and violate every uh, health standard and law. But because abortion is a super is a super right, 
that there at least must be one go. abortion clinic left in Missouri. So I, I, it's, it's you know what's amazing about that, too, is what's amazing about that is that you essentially have the judiciary saying back alley abortion standards which is what you have in clinics that are not regulated, that are totally health deficient, that risk the life of women, that end the life of children. The, the, the thinking is essentially it's better to have back alley abortions than to have no abortions. It's and, crazy. And Tom, the, stand, the standard of that decision set, which is the health department tried to shut them down, the courts say literally no. It tells Planned Parenthood St. Louis and Planned Parenthood across the country they can do whatever they want. No one can stop. Which is lawlessness. They have, they have on their side what these judges and many of their followers take to be one of the deepest anchoring principles of personal freedom, their right to the mm. Which is why, at the same time as you've seen, the governors and mayor, governors can close down the, st the state except that the abortion clinics must stay open. But you've also, but Noah also touched a very interesting part of this argument. When we, uh, it's worth pointing out that when we moved with the Born Alive Act to protect the child who survives the abortion. Uh, one of the arguments on the other side was, well, then it becomes a homicide, and there are these laws on homicide would be against the laws in any in any city, unless, as it turns out, the police think that what goes on there in in, in uh, Dr. Gosnell's clinic had something to do with a constitutional right, so they tell the people, "No, no, go around that one. Just take, avert your eyes, and that's not of your, that's not of your business." And so you say, if that sort of stuff involves what these people think now is so necessary, a we cannot conceive of any decent society going on that would close down an abortion clinic. All right, that's 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 where we that's where we've come in these uh, nearly 50 years since this thing. It's been a, a vast corruption in our laws, corrupted the understanding of the American people. I mean, it's crazy actually to think about that things like informed consent even had to be a question, right? That we even had to say, should a woman be given informed consent about what an abortion is, what the implications of it are, what the Absolutely effects of right. it are. But we had to have that debate. And where we are today, you know, we've, we've made these advances, we've made the progress, that's good. But the substantive questions have been sort of left on the cutting room floor, haven't they? I'm thinking of, of the th sort of affirmative questions. In other words, some of the European countries are dealing with this, which is what does a truly life-affirming nation look like? And we don't hear often enough uh, from political leaders, certainly, who say they advance the human right to life. We don't hear often enough what does a, a life-affirming society look like? What are the policies that would encourage healthy and robust families? Particularly, what are the policies that would encourage a mother or a father considering an abortion, for instance, to make the choice for life? And that's the sort of thing, I think, even separate from the judiciary questions, the legislative sphere is not considering that. That's where I think of this fault of this substantive good question, what is the common good? You know, when we spoke with David French, uh, he cited things like the First Amendment as a common good. But even there, I think still, you know, you've got, that's just a neutral thing, right? It doesn't speak to what, there can be bad speech. What does the common good look like, right? In a, in a context where we lost a sense of justice. The political class, well, Felix Frankfurter once warned, let those judges, those, let those politicians wearing robes make the hard decisions, the controversial decisions. And you'll soon bring forth a class of polit politicians who have the reflexes of civil servants. They don't want to take controversial, they want permanent tenure. <laughs> they don't want to take controversial issues that will agitate their followers. And so 
the political class has given this, they don't, they're not comfortable talking about these things. Well, they go back to your earlier point. As Aristotle would say, a decision taken in ignorance is not a voluntary decision. If this is a matter of personal choice, then it should be no problem. It should not be at all at war with the notion of your free choice of abortion to say you should understand what you're doing. And if it makes a profound difference for people to see what they're carrying, why could there be any moral objection to that? It's, and if you write that only when you say, no, it has nothing to do with, we've made the decision for abortion, we're not open to that kind of moral reasoning about the subject. But would we have this variant of the problem? James, James Kewson would say, I think we ought to show people pictures of the child at different points. At the child at different points. What it looks like this this month, this month, the child will. And I said, well, it, it, it reminded me of a line of Kant's, if I could find it again, that even a unanimity of feeling cannot supply the surrogate of a moral judgment. If if 99%, if 100% of the country professed to like the Coca-Cola, that would still not give us the ground for making the Coca-Cola compulsory. Let's say we look at this thing and they say, well, it looks like a baby to me. Well, that's not an answer to the person who looks at that same picture and says, well, it doesn't look like a baby to me. See, at a certain point, when you offer these little gimmicks, you have to move beyond the question of, quite apart from what it looks like, what is it? Is there a truth about what that is? And so you can imagine a state of affairs that to, to, to follow your, your question all the way down to top. Let's say we had a state of affairs. If, um, for some reasons we can't explain, women come into a clinic and they, we played them something like Melancholy Baby or some, some tune of that sort. Or it could be Andrew's sisters too. And for some reason, 90% of the people who hear this music decide not to have the abortion. But nothing in this, is, we could, so we can be glad of the lives that are saved. But at the same time, no one has come to understand the real reasons they're holding back and appreciated the fact that this is a human life that they're, whose presence they're acknowledging. And they're acknowledging now that they're not free simply to destroy that life at will, you see. So, you know, there are layers of this. And what somehow, what, at a certain point, people who were not, see, it's worse among the, it's always been worse among the college educated. It's hesitant, for, in my experience. Isn't that hilarious? It's people without college education, oh, you're going to have a baby? They know what's there. They know they're not carrying a, a pigeon or an orange, you know, an unwanted orange they can get rid of more easily. Um, <laughs> but it's, it, what's the difference? You know, it's got a line of Jefferson's where he said you could give the same question to a plowman and a professor. The plowman is more apt to get it right because he's not going to be affected by artificial rules or theories. The people who've been to college have been absorbed theories. They they learn how to how to talk about theories that give them rationales <laughs> for what they're doing, and uh, divert from the from the, from the palpable fact they know when you're pregnant. You know what you're carrying when you're when you're pregnant. You know when I was a youngster in the in the fifties, the nineteen fifties that is, that. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, 
those were good times. Um, <laughs> people seem to know that if somebody, a gal in high school got pregnant during college, well, that was the end of childhood. No, just don't, you know, you, you don't, you don't don't get rid of it. You know, there's all, you know, talk about, there's an old Red Scout line where he said, they had a military wedding. I think they had a military wedding. Let's put, let's put it this way. There were guns there. (laughs) That is a joke that has fled from our culture. Because yeah. it reflects a time when even people in Al Cap's Dog Patch USA understood they didn't have a license. They didn't have a license just to get rid of this thing, you know? So, the, you know, what was taking place in this culture that is that things that, that people unburdened with a college education understood earlier on, that now people with a college education have uh, taught themselves no longer to know. If you were advising the president, this president or president in the future, you know, what would you try to tell them to look for in a Supreme Court judge? Because I think that President Trump did more than past people have. He released this list of names and they were the best and brightest. Uh, and, you know, many have felt uh, somewhat let down. What, so what's the, what are the questions that we can ask and how would you try to find the people with sort of spines of steel that can uh, sort of find these truths when we need them. Well, you know, this gets back to the question: be well, well, look, how do, how could we have told? told we we made our best guesses because uh, we're asking about textualism. Well, we do have. There are other questions we could have asked them. Do you think that pe- that people are free just to make up make up their own minds as to what they are, make up their own, or there are deep truths involved there? These are the kinds of questions that could be arising. But it's, the reasons we don't ask them is that they don't want to um, give them away in, in, in confirmation hearings. In other words, it's the liberal, liberal opinions to dominate so the Republicans are afraid to say, conservatives are afraid to say in confirmation hearings. Yes, I have this discussed. But yes, I have serious reservations about abortions. Uh, one way we could get to this is to ask better questions that deal with the very substance of the things we're talking about. We can't ask questions about abortion. Now, one of the dangers here of what's happened is people say, look, uh, we voted for Trump on the for the judges, and now uh, we don't know what we're going to get. And the Federal Society is simply guessing. It makes these decisions by uh, seeing what, how people stand on textualism. And you see how that worked out for you. In which case, my concern is that Trump is going to think, may think, well, why should, why should I listen to them? Why can't I take the people I know? Like my sister in the New Jersey case on, on a partial birth abortion. I remember his sister said in a line I quoted in Natural Rights, the Right to Choose, said, this is preposterous. The time goes, an abortion at the point of birth? There was no birth. The woman decided she didn't want to have a baby. There is no birth. She decided there shall be no birth. There is no birth. This was postmodernist jurisprudence with a vengeance. And Hadley, you're not joking. Donald Trump, the president, has a sister who was a federal judge who released that opinion. Mary Ann Trump Berry, who was in that decision with Sam, Sam Alito's on the court with her. And uh, and she she was in that decision to strike down the law on uh partial birth abortion in New Jersey. He could, cho- he could have chosen her at one point when 
George W. Bush chose John Roberts, who's a friend of mine. He had a choice of two friends of mine. One of the other ones, Michael Ludick, who's a great judge in, in Virginia. And Mike Ludick said all before he, when, when Bush turned away from him, he just decided he'd rather go out and make some money for his family. But before that, all 27 of his last clerks were sent onto the court, Supreme Court, because mm. that much confidence that members of the Supreme Court had in Mike Ludick as a teacher. And someone remarked to me that Mike Ludick had to make very, very tough decisions. And John Roberts never had to put his name on a signature knowing that the reporters are waiting down below ready to really go after him. And we don't know how he would do if the, if the, if the things became choppy and threatening. Uh, things might have gone a different way. One thing might, a, a president would want to do is, what's the record of his dealing with, what kind of reasoning has he given in these cases? How has he dealt with um, the very tough cases? But he's needs, a president needs tutoring. He's not, most of these people are not really up on the law and what, what, what the judges are doing. They need some better tutoring than they've had. But we, you, the very point of my project now is that we have to divert people now to con- for jurisprudence that does not find, exp- ex- concentrate its genius in figuring out how to avoid addressing the central moral question of the case, but a jurisprudence that realizes it can address those questions. And in fact, those questions remain at the heart of the case. And those are still the things that need first to be explained. That's precisely Right. You know, I look at what happens in these confirmation hearings and you can look from, you know, the the 90s through to today, you know, when it started, when the contentiousness started with uh, Bork, um, you know, when he was shut out, um, basically because of Roe. And you see the divisiveness and you see how that's played out most recently with the Kavanaugh hearings. And truly, God only knows what the next process is going to look like. But I can't help but reflect on how strange a scene it is that when it comes to these nominations, even in a moment of uh, a pro-life executive branch and a pro-life Senate, right, that the justices are, or, you know, that the, the potential justices are trotted out and they're asked to play this sort of too clever by half game Exactly. Of saying, you know, well, what do you think about Roe v. Wade? And they're sort of expected, even by the conservatives who believe that the human right to life couldn't be clearer than the sun, they're asked to sort of say, well, you know, it's a, it sure is a contentious issue. And they're, they're asked basically to lie because they're, you know, told, well, answer in a way where it sort of seems like you've never really grappled with the issue. And it's like, I'm sorry, but if you're an American in 2020, you've thought to some degree about issues like abortion, euthanasia, suicide, etc. It is simply not credible to think here is somebody who's been through Yale, Harvard, whatever, prestigious law schools, prestigious colleges, and haven't grappled with these issues. So I think until we get to a point where nominees are able to boldly say, what do I think about Roe v. Wade, and answer in the way we would want somebody to answer about things like segregation or interracial marriage, or slavery, and boldly say, human rights are clear as day, and I'm in favor of human rights. The Constitution is in favor of human rights. Next question. Perfectly out, but now you have to ask your question, something like a content thing, question, the transcendental question, what has to be in place before they're able to do something like that? We're working within a setting 
in which the liberal sentiment is the dominant one that people are afraid of calling it into question or challenging it. Somehow they think, they have the impression that somehow the latent opinion is on the side of, of abortion and that it's too risky to call it into question. And they'll, they'll, and they'll run the risk of alienating uh, these. Sure, uh, yeah, I don't like it, but I don't really want to be disagreeable. Yeah, these are Republicans who are full vote with the party, but they get shaky on abortion. They're never going to be good on it. So you risk uh, losing your own party. So something has to change in the way it's done. And one of the things you do is we thought that bill on uh, saving the life of the child who survives is a way of getting together, giving giving the, the Republicans something very easy to defend. Uh, this could be the this is the hard you know the the other side always speaks of our hard case of rape that they know they can peel people away from this. This is their hard case, and we should be just. You know, hitting that, that, making them bear the burden of, mm. of our. This is one way of changing the whole atmosphere of opinion by leading them into people in a different direction, but in in this in in the, in the short steps that people can uh, can follow and understand. Uh, but I think it would take something, which was to say, it does take the political art. Remember Lincoln saying, uh, we can't talk about slavery in the churches. It's just too explosive. It doesn't belong there. We can't talk about it in politics. It is too explosive. <laughs> it is somehow the central question, but we can't find a place to talk about it. And what was, was Lincoln is always the model of statecraft in so many ways. And on this point, you know, Lincoln somehow showed people how we can talk about this matter in a sensible way. And the fact that he succeeded is shown through those letters of Civil War soldiers where, you know, Lincoln's lines are coming through. You find these soldiers saying, in, in giving freedom to the slave, we're securing freedom to the free. They won't be able exactly. to take away from us what our fathers were able to secure for us. But that's what we need. We need a political class that um, is willing to put some work in and, and uh, show a bit of artistry in that respect and figure out how to make the points accessible to the American people. We have to be able to do a bit of teaching here. And sometimes humor will do it. Sometimes you will make the point. But um, remember, Lincoln said, he who shapes public opinion shapes the climate in which anything can be done. And that is the the political art. So one of our problems is that we've we've invested so maybe this situation will break us from that. We've invested so much in the courts that the political class has neglected its own response. Um, I've written a lot about this about Lincoln's way of resisting the Dred Scott decision. The fact that you know, as, as Russ Hinninger said. Lincoln could not have raised his hand on March 4th, 1861, and taken his oath to support the Constitution if it were really thought that that decision in the Dred Scott case, my right not to be dispossessed of property of slave when I entered a territory, if we thought that that right was really now woven into the Constitution as though it were the text itself, okay? And then he proceeded to show us that, look, we will respect the outcome of the case in regard to those litigants. But if we're not persuaded by the principle of the case, we're still free to act upon a different principle. We need to revive that. The Democrats have done that, used that, that approach in a number of things like 
the legislative veto and the War Powers Act, things like that. But the Republicans have been timid about this. And it's time to recover that sense. And there's no way Lincoln could have been wrong with that. We can, the, so it's a matter of summoning the, the, the courage of people in, you know, when, when Ronald Reagan used to say, my God, these people are afraid of criticism. Why are they in this business? That's right. <laughs> we need a reimagining of the political realities. I think that's exactly right, Hadley. It's, and it it's starts with, or at least it can start with, as one of the components, recognizing that our present political faction didn't come into place overnight. It developed organically. You know, Dan Lipinski was just purged oh. by his own party. But yeah. despite this sort of this binary that we found ourselves in, we know from the statistics that tens of millions of Americans are dissatisfied with it. And so it's like when we look at, uh, say, the next SCOTUS nomination, if we could figure out some way to pose these questions, for instance, of human rights outside of that binary where we don't have to worry about how do we get 51% of the votes in the Senate to get the person in, but how do we peel off 20 people from the other party, whether Republican or Democrat, to get behind a good justice, right? It's like until we break this faction. Well, one way you could do that is by bringing out what the real meaning of Roe is and to see how many of those Democrats in the hearings are, in fact, willing to declare themselves in favor of a right to abortion that extends beyond the pregnancy itself. Now. One way we did that was some of us were writing questions for the Judiciary Committee when uh, Sonia Sotomayor and Alan Kagan, Linda Kagan were coming up and said, why don't you ask them to explain Roe versus Wade? Because most pe people yeah. don't really know what's in it. Just explain it. Bring that out. And then uh, see how many Democrats really want to stay there and, listen, and, and, and expose themselves to this thing if you really want to talk about the substance of the issue. Make it harder for them to go through this thing, give it a cost for them, but at the same time, bring out the reality of what is done. Remember, um, a dear friend of mine in one of the leading law schools in the country about 20 years ago, took a survey among 50, 25 of her colleagues on Roe versus Wade and found only five of them could give an accurate account of what was in the case. So when Sonia Sotomayor was up, um, we don't understand what's in it. Could you tell me how you understand that case? And she said, uh, she stepped into the trap. She said, and by the way, it was not until the third round of questioning that the question was raised, not by any lawyer on the Judiciary Committee, but by Tom Coburn. And uh, she said, could you tell us? She said, it's, you can have an abortion under certain circumstances. Really? Uh, see, when somebody says that, the next line is, well, don't you understand? Under Roe versus Wade and the companion case, Roe versus Bo you can have an abortion the entire length of pregnancy. And even now, the man who appointed you thought that a restriction on killing the child born alive would actually, is actually incompatible with Roe. Isn't this worth bringing out? Right. Yet? Draw out the distinctions. Yet. But the Republicans didn't want to do it. And they didn't want to do that kind of thing even now because they're afraid of scaring off their wobbly members. Remember, think about you and I think about what we'd like to see done, and then, but that becomes different from the people who want to get these people appointed, hoping, thinking that the the advent of a John Roberts and a Sam Alito will make a profound difference, and so they're willing to say, let's let's let's, and of course, why should any one of these guys, the gals, put themselves through 
this procedure and the the vilification that there is going on here, uh, while at the same time being willing to just throw things over at the moment because they're willing to be utterly brutally honest or, or just honest about what they what they're thinking about. It's it's, it's but it again brings home to us uh, the things. I remember I, I put this question once to John Roberts because before he was. Uh, when he was on the D.C. Circuit before he went to the Supreme Court, I had the strategy for dealing with the case. I probably told you about this, but uh, our friends who are political experience split down the middle. Some say, God, this is brilliant. Why haven't we done it? Others say, are you out of your effing mind? <laughs> <laughs> and, and it goes like this. It's, it's, it's a woman. I said, you know, say, I'm a female ca- candidate. I say, you know, Senator, I find even many lawyers are unclear about the meaning of vote, would you tell me how you understand that case? And if he says you can have an abortion on the first trimester, you know, you correct him on that. And it's been the rare kind of uh, senator uh, who, who only like 24% of the, of the public's ever thought you can have an abortion throughout the entire length of the pregnancy for any reason. It's the rare senator who wanted from that position. Okay, you bring this out there. And then next next step two is, um, well, Senator, you realize I can't speak today about the restrictions on abortion that would be justified or unjustified without virtually inviting the legislation that I'd be asked to judge. End of conversation. Now and forevermore. And I remember I tried out in John and he said, he said, he said there you go, you're... you're you're assuming that Biden and company care about the reasoning. Mm. They don't care. They don't care. And uh, you know, John went through it. I said, "So you're you're, so you're you're not notionist, John. You're just gonna have to put your head down and take the pummeling, huh?" He said, "Yeah, that's it." Uh, and he, you know, he, you you could see it born of, born of practical experience. What well, these people see, they think the Democrats are not at all interested in reasoning. But I said, I says, "Well." Let's try, let's give them a taste. Of, let's see how this thing can make be made deeply uncomfortable for them, just by letting them tell us what their real position is on this question. Why is why is that unfair? Let's do it. So I think I think it could be good theater and good um, and good theater. <laughs> good theater is always a good is also be a good education. Was it Franklin? I think who said uh, that only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. And the founders, I think, broadly thought the American experiment could work so long as, and I'm certainly distill like this, but you know, it's like if you have a virtuous people and if you avoid excess political faction, then, you know, you have a chance of kind of holding this together. And, you know, we're today, you know, we're having a debate over, well, what is virtue? And then on the other end, we've got, I would say, certainly excess political faction, which kind of leaves the future in doubt, doesn't it? I think of Mark Twain in uh, Putnam Wilson's calendar. Said God gave us a moral and a moral and an immoral sense. He gave us a moral sense to under, understand what is good and how to avoid it. And a moral <laughs> sense of, of of what is bad and how to enjoy it. And yet uh, we muddy through in different ways because people have. You, know, remember, um, you say Pete Rose that you could ask him to lay down the bunt because you needed the bunt 
even though it could affect his batting average. And he laid on the bunt out of the sense of the integrity of what is needed. And you find that at work in so many people. And, you know, Ronald Reagan used to, you know, that wonderful first inaugural, when he talked about the uh, heroism of ordinary life. You know, the mother, who's single mother, who's just trying to keep things together. Like Ben Carson's mother, you know. People try to keep things together. She's been deserted. She, she wants to raise a child in the right way. Where there are many people who are facing up to their lives every day. Look at the people who are going to be surviving in, in those, those sections now, ravaged by the riots, who have to rebuild their lives. Think of that. Uh, we have so many ordinary people who show their their sense of obligation in so many ways. We've, we haven't extinguished that. And uh, we do have people still who give babies for adoption, even though, you know, after abortion, it's a Hobson world, which you could say, uh, you know, the Hobson world, you say, I could have taken your life, I could, but I didn't. Therefore, you owe me something. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, oh, no, listen, listen. I, years ago, I heard this from a British diplomat uh, at the Smithsonian. He said, we owe the Russians something. Why? After the government fell in Portugal, they could have put arms in, but they didn't. And <laughs> we could have made, they could have made trouble. They didn't. Our lives have been made easier. We owe them something. Uh, no, we don't owe them anything. No, no, the people absorbed just the way that uh, people taken hostage, you know, in, in banks and so on. Suddenly the, the, the hostage takers let them go and they're grateful to their captors. That's Stockholm Syndrome, yeah. No, the Stockholm Syndrome. Now here, in the aftermath of Roe versus Wade, the right to abortion, you could say any was any child can show you a gratitude, a Hobbesian gratitude. My God, you have this you have this right to kill me as it simply suits your own pleasure and you held back from doing it. You know, a conversation we had a few weeks ago, I don't know if you ever got to listen to it, Hadley, was with Josh Craddock. I know one of your uh He's wonderful uh, yeah, affiliated scholar, and he's a terrific guy. And I, I think that you know his, his ideas give me a lot of hope about sort of finding, um, you know, the, the the right to eliminate abortion in the Fourteenth Amendment and the right to life for prenatal persons in the Fourteenth Amendment. And uh, you know, people like you, who Hadley, the the architect of the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, and uh, all of these other terrific things that you do, there is a there is a lot of room for optimism in this fight. And, uh, you know, the, the side the side of life is the side of justice. And I think that is where we are ultimately heading. Josh Craddock's predecessor was Steve Gelbach. He was a classmate of John Roberts at, at Harvard, and he worked at the White House. But Steve was working, writing right away about uh, protecting the unborn child under the 14th Amendment. And after all, why not? It, 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 the, the government has an obligation to protect life against uh, those actions in moves within the states that withhold protection of life, as it would be the states withhold protections of life from and, uh, and other rights from black people. We all know, again, that, that uh, if, if, if it's a human being, then it has claims to the protections of the law. We should know that. We know that that its claim does not depend on its size and weight, as we talked about earlier. It's all there. It, it, we, the principles are there, and yet you find, you know, some even conservative members of the court thinking that it's it can't be done because because they weren't uh, the, uh, the unborn child wasn't the child was being protected only when it was born. 
Well, why do you assume that? I mean, we, we, it, it's, its presence is known. We know that it doesn't undergo a change of species at any point. And it certainly interfere with the freedom of the, of the fetus to move into state commerce. Right? <laughs> so, so, we have a very wide view of the Commerce Clause. Right, that's right. that's going to be the line. Yeah. The Commerce Clause will do it. Okay. So, uh, so it's it's all there now. Now, uh, Steve Steve Gailbach was quite terrific. He wrote about. In fact, he was in a debate with Bob Bork on this years ago with Bill Buckley, where where people like Bob Bork would say, "No, the Constitution doesn't protect uh, the unborn child." This is clear in the text of you, though. Even even uh, my my beloved uh, Antonin Scalia uh, took that line. Oh, here's Steve Gilbach. By the way, he worked in the White House with John Roberts. He said he never had any conversation with John Roberts about abortion. Mm-hmm. That he had no idea what what John would be on that issue. Um, but I, you know, we assumed he was sort of with the rest of us as pro-lifers who were gathered around the Reagan mysteries. But here's so here's Steve Gilbach. That was circa 1981, almost 40 years ago. And now here's Josh Craddock picking up the theme again and others. With the people we've been attracting lately to the Wilson Institute, our project of natural law, we've had some real conversions of people who uh, see the landscape in a different way through uh, the lens of natural law. But it it does look grim now as to uh, the the state of the court and uh, what is prefigured here with um, with John Roberts. But again, I, I, to, to, the more buoyant note is, uh, look, look at you two, you know, you know Tom and Noah, and I see the, my own aide, uh, Garrett Snedeker, who's quite wonderful. Uh, he's 31. He, there, I see emerging people of his age, people, people like Josh Hammer and other people who are coming, been clerking at the court, coming out of law school, and they are, they've been aroused by this thing. They really want to take a different path uh, in, in, in jurisprudence. That's right. So, so Garrett at the James Wilson Institute and Josh Hammer now at uh, Newsweek, I think, have both been great voices. And Hadley, we should talk f- for a moment, too, about the James Wilson Institute, because I think you guys just named a recent cohort of fellows, right? Right. So mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about what the James Wilson Institute uh, does throughout the year and, and what you're doing right now in this season. Well, the mission was to try to restore to a new generation, the and even some an older, older generation, and, uh, those furnishings of mind of those uh, those people who made the who made the Constitution, who framed the Constitution, uh, the mind of Hamilton, uh, Hamilton and uh, Marshall, James Wilson, with his marvelous lectures on law, just luminous lectures on law. He was a member of the Constitutional Convention. He signed the Declaration of Independence. He was a member of the first Supreme Court. And um, he had this wonderful opinion, the first case to elicit a set of opinions from the court, Chisholm versus Georgia, where he said, we're at the beginning of the American law. We have no precedence to, to call upon. We have to go back to the general principles of jurisprudence. But even before that, we have to go back to the principles of mind and the working Thomas Reed, who argued against the skeptics of his age, who under all but false colors prevailed in the Europe at the time he wrote. Uh, he was, um, uh, he drew upon Tom, the great Thomas Reed and those principles of common sense. And this this is a, a line from Horsman, uh, that uh, the principles of common sense, Thomas Reed and my late friend Dan Robinson, that those things that ordinary people have to know before they can engage in bantering about theories. 
before an average person that can banter with David Hume about the meaning of causation, he knows his <laughs> own active powers to cause his own acts to happen. And what we're trying to teach people is that those principles of natural law involve those things so fundamental that is as that we must take the, we must take them for granted. And as Jay Budashevsky says, they're the things we cannot not know. But anyway, what we try to do is go back to, you know, read those things again. I've, I've been using mainly my own writings in several books over the years, including First Things, First Things in Journal, book. A beautiful book used all over my, my family in Chicago. It was a toaster to put under drinks. <laughs> and and, and, uh, and use First Things. But anyway, what we've been, we, we, have two, we have two signature programs. We have twice a year, we have a meeting bringing together some very gifted teachers of philosophy and law with some stars of the federal bench who really want to get a firmer hold on this. And the more we've been drawing more and more judges in who want to be with us. You know, Dermot Scanlon, Scanlon, Janice Rogers Brown, Edith Jones, and so on. And then we have in the summer uh, a tensive week with young people newly sprung from law schools who who are on the way to clerkships or on the way to work for the government or in private practice. And they really, as the years going on, we've got a higher and higher caliber. They're just, we had a, just a hard time choosing people. We had just a, uh, a wealth of, of attractive candidates. And this year we had somebody for the first time. We've had somebody going to be with us who has clerked at the Supreme Court already for John Roberts. Mm. And it's a lovely gal who, uh, who thinks that she missed something. She might have missed something in her legal education. Now, apart from that, we, we've had, we take a version of that course and have a kind of a, a weekend version, a Friday night and a Saturday, which we've done at the law schools at Harvard, Yale, Columbia, Chicago, Texas, Brigham Young. And we've had these lectures and uh, now webinar seminars that have brought people in. From, we, we, we were going to, last year we were going to do a, a, a seminar on Juliana Pilon's lovely book, really interesting book, uh, The Utopian Conceit. We couldn't, we, we couldn't bring people together in town, so we decided to do it by webinar. But the remarkable thing is we had we happen to be in a, a, writ, a, a remarkable audience from all over the country, people who, who have an interest in this. So uh, we've got friends in California and Florida who came in for this. So it turned out to be really uh, an even more high-powered audience that we get through the webinar than we're able to get uh, even when we bring our friends together in, in town. So we've got – and we think we have to make a new surge and do even more. And we may be making steps to, to bring on uh, uh, some other colleagues for me who could take this into the next phase when – as. A late colleague of mine would say, when it's time for me to move on to that great political science department in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> Another couple of weeks, on July 7th, uh, Ringo Starr and Dick Army and I will be celebrating our 80th birthdays. Wow. And we, were, we were all separated at birth. <laughs> were you the fifth Beatle, Hadley? Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't carry the tune. I, and that, that music I didn't understand. I was there when it, when, it, when it came. But anyway, we've had a real surge, and we think now there's even while we've gone on, there's been more of an appetite for what we're doing. So I, I've got the, you know, the energy to keep going. Tom Klingenstein of New York came to me almost 10 years ago and says, I want you to change the legal culture. 
Well, I have a conservative skepticism about our prospect of doing that. I have this, I feel as close to that catcher in the rye and the recognition breaks in that he can rub now to the end of time and never get all the FUs off of all those bathroom walls. (laughs) 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 And I said, I had that conservative skepticism. And yet I thought it is worth doing it. Why not do it? If it's, it is worth doing, let's give this the best shot we can. And I have, I have some of my former students early on sending money. And I said, are you sending too much? Don't worry. You know, I'm not know if we'll succeed. And then right and then running back, you've got to do it. It is worth doing. We do many things. We've been, we've been quite busy. We also had some seminars. We're trying to bring to, bringing together some younger people in the, in the, in the law schools. I'm doing things like the moral ground of property rights or, with some seasoned people like Ron Cass, Judge Doug Ginsburg, uh, Chris DeMuth, on um, ways of unraveling the administrative state. Uh, But we're looking always for the moral dimensions of these problems and uh, the critical moral ground on which everything would have to turn. That's, that's, That's our focus. So it's been, we brought ourselves We've been bringing us really fine people have been coming to our side on this one, and, and it's, it's been very encouraging. It's tremendous. Yeah, jameswilsoninstitute.org. We're going to continue to follow that. I know I love receiving the emails. I've been getting the webinars. That's wonderful, Tom. That's great that you guys uh, are staying with us. I'm just, just charmed. You know, remember years ago, I had this letter from um, a fellow who was retired to the uh, Western uh, Virginia, and he got absorbed my book, First Things. And he said well, for, for about a month, he could talk to visitors about nothing else. Uh-huh. And I think, I think, my gosh, you know, you write these books and you hear these people, you see these people are willing to spend weeks getting absorbed in them and just listening to your voice. And, I, you know, you know well, of course, why are we writing these books that we didn't expect to read? <laughs> <laughs> and yet there is something I just find so touching about it. You know, I'm, I'm thinking as we're coming to a close, it's like uh, the situation we're in as we're trying to figure out what is the future of originalism? You know, do we stick with it? Do we move beyond it as Adrian Vermeule encourages? And as you're describing James Wilson, right, in being there at the beginning, right, of this American experiment and saying, you know, because we don't have precedent, we've got to look back to principle, right, which is a common sense thing to do. It's sort of like the ecosystem we inhabit right now, I think across factions is sort of an anti James Wilson perspective of sort of saying like, well, now that we have a history of bad precedent in American law, we might as well jettison good principle too, you know, and we're seeing kind of the fruits of that, I think, across our whole jurisprudence as we, as we abstract and alienate ourselves from all those common sense things which principles point to. So, you know, we've talked about like, you know, you, you cited Reagan's idea of everyday heroism, just the encounters that, that we have with our family, with our friends, with our loved ones in dealing with issues across the spectrum of human rights issues, of abortion, of euthanasia, of the rights of our mothers and fathers, right, maybe in nursing homes during this virus, and what's owed to people who are particularly vulnerable. And that's the challenge, right, is to get away from ideology and from the ideology that abstracts us from the truth, the truth that's encountered in a person, right? That's where we encounter principle ultimately it's in meeting our loved ones it's in meeting our neighbors i mean i was thinking of uh i don't know if you guys have ever read uh, whitaker chambers but ben dominich over at the federalist shared a bit of that i want to share that here as we come to a close he shared this earlier this year around the march for life and it's a beautiful excerpt that i think just illustrates some of this 
so clearly this this need to get away from abstraction away from ideology and ben wrote at the time he said everyone who was strongly pro-life has a moment that made them feel this way and he shares his he says i knew i was pro-life from a young age but when i was 12 i read whitaker chambers book witness if you haven't read it he says the chapter the child is the fulcrum of the whole thing and then he excerpts here for one of us to have a child, my brother had said, would be a crime against nature. I longed for children, but I agreed with my brother. There had been enough misery in our time. What selfish right had I to perpetuate it? And what right had any man and woman to bring children into the 20th century world? As a communist, I took it for granted that children were out of the question. Abortion, which now fills me with physical horror... I then regarded, like all communists, as a mere physical manipulation. One day, early in 1933, my wife told me she believed she had conceived. No man can hear this from his wife, especially for the first time, that she is carrying his child without a physical jolt of joy and pride. I felt it. But so sunk were we in that life that it was only a passing joy and was succeeded by a merely momentary sadness that we would not have the child. We discussed the matter, and my wife said that she must go at once for a physical check and to arrange for the abortion. When my wife came back, she was quiet and noncommittal. The doctor had said there was a child. My wife went about preparing supper. What else did she say? I asked. She said, my wife said, that I am in good physical shape to have a baby. My wife went on silently working. Very slowly, the truth dawned on me. Do you mean, I asked my wife, that you want to have the child? My wife came over to me, took my hands, and burst into tears. Dear heart, she said in a pleading voice, we couldn't do that awful thing to a little baby. Not to a little baby, dear heart. <laughs> a wild joy swept me. Reason, the agony of my family, the Communist Party and its theories, the wars and revolutions of the 20th century, all these things crumbled at the touch of a child. Isn't that incredible? You, you have it all there. Beautiful. And it, it, it touches everything. It touches everything. You guys are a marvelous company. Something we do every show is our shot of gratitude, just something we're grateful for. So I think we've gotten more buoyant despite our uncertainty about the court and the fact that we're speaking, of course, before we understand what the court's going to decide in June Medical Services. Hadley, what is something you're grateful for? Well, the, the goodness I do find around me and the uh, and friendship and, and children and the prospects of, of renewing things. And um, there, is, there, is, there is much. That, well, look, I... I I've had you too, and, and, and all the promise of, of the younger people that, that I still encounter. I have to send you my, my, my dedication of my book of George Sutherland to my Aunt Bean, because I remember there being the first grandchild in a wartime house with an apartment in Chicago with nine adults. And this was a house in which a two-year-old can wander into the kitchen filled with adults in the morning, say, good morning, everybody. And get a standing ovation. And somebody said, that, you know, to me, I thought, 
I, I thought the world was filled with catchers in the rye, <laughs> people who wanted to carry one of my, my, I remember I, I said to one of my colleagues that uh, I tend to give people the benefit of the doubt and presume in their favor until the evidence becomes unmistakable that I can't trust them. And he, he switched to scotch and said, that's the kind of saccharine sentiment that can issue only from someone with a secure childhood. I said, you know, you're right. I wonder how people without a college education manage to impart a certain kind of serenity to a, to a two-year-old. And I think it was very simple that maybe one of the said that the grown-ups had a sense of the work of grown-ups, that there would always be somebody there. They didn't have college educations, but they were somehow they knew what was expected of them. And no, we don't expect you, the youngster, to do therapy. You know, <laughs> no, no, no. This is there was a time when grown-ups knew what was expected of them, and and that they that imparts a certain serenity to youngsters and. Um, I still see enough enough good in the world to sort of keep me going. Noah, you're no Holden Caulfield, I know. What is something you're grateful for? <laughs> I'm always so grateful for talking to Hadley. He's one of my favorite people in the world. Oh. But uh, on, on, a, on a different level, you know, here in St. Louis, uh, we're about to head with my family, my wife's family, to the St. Louis Zoo, one of the greatest zoos in the country, completely free or, or funded by taxes, but you don't pay the door. It's a very happy time for me to be able to see uh, my, you know, almost two-year-old baby niece uh, sort of just run around in the beautiful June weather we're having and just uh, even in the midst of the chaos of the world, see just like Hadley's talking about, just a little uh, a little baby being loved and learning how to, wow. how to be, a, be a human. I love it. I'm grateful because in Washington, D.C. and Virginia and the DMV area, for Catholics in particular, we have the return of mass. I got an email from... Uh, my pastor, uh, that uh, that daily mass is returning now, actually. Hadley, Noah, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good, good luck to you both. All right. So if you're not familiar with the James Wilson Institute, do visit jameswilsoninstitute.org for more about their mission, their work, and how you can follow along, get involved, and tell others about it. Be sure to visit Americans United for Life at aul.org to do the same. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Rate the show and leave a review. Let a friend know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for Hadley or for me or for Noah, drop us an email at life at AUL.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.